get herring, uh, another bottom of the food chain uh, animal, uh, which brings the, the, both the humpbacks, the orca, uh, sea lions, Pacific white-sided dolphins, those porpoises. It's just on a marine wonderland. Welcome to the Wildlife and Wilderness Travel and Safari Show, the world's first and only podcast on wildlife safaris worldwide and sustainable tourism. This show is for everyone interested in ecotourism, travel in the natural world, and adventures to our planet's wild places. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Banner, biologist and director of the travel company Wildlife and Wilderness, providing high quality holiday experiences to thousands of clients for almost 25 years. Today we're putting the pod in podcast. Those first sounds you heard were from killer whales, orcas, off the west coast of Canada. In fact, what's very cool is that from just that short clip, they were identified by Megan at Orca Labs as members of the northern resident A5 pod in the Broughton Archipelago off Vancouver Island. And that group of islands is where we want to take you today to explore Farewell Harbour Lodge and the wildlife of Great Bear Rainforest. Before we do, just a reminder that if you want to get in touch, then do drop us an email to podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com or visit our website at wildlifewilderness.com. So in this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Tim McGrady. Tim has paddled kayaks around the islands and fjords of the Pacific West Coast of Canada for many years, and also worked at a number of different wildlife watching lodges. And he has a great knowledge of bears, whales, and the nature of the region. Today, he is part owner, manager, and guide at Farewell Harbour Lodge. Over to Tim to explain more. Uh, yeah, my name is Tim McGrady, and along with my wife, Kelly, we are the managing partners of Farewell Harbour Lodge in the Broughton Archipelago off the northeast tip of Vancouver Island. And we have, uh, we, our lodge is, is jointly owned with another family, the Brockway family. And there's a bit of a story to that, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But um, my wife and I have been guiding and working along the British Columbia coast for um, probably about 20 years. And we started off as kayak guides in the early 1990s. We met kayaking and have have spent our, our the last 20 years is exploring all different uh, corners and pockets of this beautiful coast. And about three years ago, we we realized that we really wanted to own our own business. And we met another family, the Brockway family. And Ryan had started his lodge called Bones Bay Lodge, not far from Farewell Harbor. It was a floating lodge. And he was getting to the point where he was looking to sell his business. And we were put together by a mutual travel trade partner. So we, we joined each other um, and we looked at his facility and it was, um, it was a small lodge. It was only four rooms, um, beautiful, beautiful facility, but, but quite small. He'd recently been designated as a signature experience by Destination Canada for his Bears and Whales program. So it had a really incredible work ethic, a real incredible dedication to hospitality. And so we, um, we had a, a conversation and we were lo- really looking at buying his lodge, but, but really came to the conclusion that it was too small of a business to really launch ourselves into uh, and support ourselves and our family. Uh, so we went back to the drawing board and we talked to Ryan and, and his family and we said, look, Ryan, why don't you uh, stay with us and, and become partners with us and we'll expand. And so he had another, he had another business that was quite successful in the United States. He's a dual citizen. And uh, so he was quite happy with that. We had to go back to his wife and said, 
hey, um, you know, we had this idea of selling the lodge, but what if we, what if we join partners with the McGrady's uh, and we expand and go deeper into debt? <laughs> and so his wife, his wife agreed, um, funnily enough. And, and so three years ago, we joined forces and went shopping for another lodge. And so we went all over the coast trying to find another facility to expand. We found a floating lodge up in uh, Haida Gwaii. But we realized that we really liked the idea of, of this combination between a floating lodge and a land-based lodge. Yeah. And one day we both started talking about different scenarios and, and we, 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 we knew of Farewell Harbor and, and the lodge there. It had been a fishing lodge in the 1980s and 90s, uh, but had gone out of business in actually in 2008 and had been sitting empty for about 10 years. And those of us who travel along the coast of BC known about Farewell Harbor. It's a beautiful protected anchorage, one of the most uh, protected and beautiful anchorages on the coast. And, um, and, and so we're, we're talking one day and, and Ryan just happened to say, what about Farewell Harbor? And, and I said, yeah, I love that lodge. I love that area. And so we went and, and, and approached the, 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 the owners and, um, and then concluded a deal. Uh, to purchase the, the lodge and of course there was no business associated with the facility at the time um, but we used Bones Bay Lodge Ryan's four-room floating lodge as sort of a launch point uh, to to you know to to combine them together and launch this new business and and rebrand as Farewell Harbor so now we have this floating component four rooms we towed Ryan's lodge into Farewell Harbor and connected it all together and got all our permits set up um, and we have so we have the four rooms on the float and the eight rooms on land uh, for 12 rooms total in this beautiful protected bay called Farewell Harbor. And Bones Bay wasn't too far away from Farewell when it was where it was originally sited, was it? As I understand. No, it's, it was only about seven nautical miles away, and uh, it was quite an interesting. Uh, the day that we that we 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 pulled it into. Farewell Harbor, as, as these things often happen, you know, when you're starting an, your own business, as I'm sure you know, Steve, we didn't actually have the final permits in place to tow Bones Bay in. <laughs> we took a bit of a gamble that we were hoping we would get the permits. But the day that we actually happened to tow was a, <laughs> on route. <laughs> uh, well, we, yeah, well, even on route, we had we had this incredible we had the, the facility. It's two uh, 60 foot long uh, wooden floats. We had them moored together, towed by a, by a, 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 a towboat, a tugboat, uh, coming down Clio Channel, and a huge westerly wind sprung up on forecast uh, and threatened to push the whole lodge onto the beach. And so the, the, the tugboat had to do this big U-turn in the middle of this really narrow channel, bring it back into Bones Bay, and we had to wait oh, no. for some calmer weather. Um, but we finally got it all set up and, and moored, and um, it, yeah, it's been a... It's been a fantastic experience, Steve. You know, it's not, it's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears, as I'm sure you know, as a small business person, you know, you're, you're in there doing everything and anything to make yeah, your dream fly. Sure. But it's, we've gotten my wife, Kelly, our two boys and Ryan and his family. And we've had just an amazing friendship and a bond that's developed uh, over the last three years. That's excellent. And what a great story as well, how it's all come together from two sides. Um, to combine to make probably yeah, yeah. one of the most uh, interesting lodges on the coast there. Because as I was saying just before we came on air, um, you've got both the, the um, fjords behind you and the open waters, more or less open waters towards Vancouver Island at least, out in front. 
That's right. Yeah, we're in the heart of the Broughton Archipelago, and the Broughton Archipelago um, is, is a maze of hundreds of islands, um, and it makes for a very unique geography. So we have Vancouver Island off the coast of British Columbia, and the uh, the, 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 the the inside passage, which which runs between Vancouver Island and the mainland, uh, changes in in width as you go uh, north to south, and so up at the Broughtons, we, it narrows substantially, and so um, and and so essentially it's a natural bottleneck, yeah. and so it's a bottleneck for for currents. So all the, the the Pacific Ocean as it's trying to flood around the northern tip of Vancouver Island to come down the channel, the path, the inland, uh, the inside passage. Uh, accelerates through this nar these narrow passages, and so you get incredibly strong uh, current activity, which generates a lot of upwelling uh, of of uh, nutrients. And the upwelling brings in the uh, biodiversity to the area as well, of course. So it brings in a massive amount of food. For That's precisely it. And so this this, this incredibly nutrient rich waters brings the salmon, which of course the bottom of the food chain, and we bring we get herring. Another bottom of the food chain uh, animal, uh, which brings the, the both the humpbacks, the orca, uh, sea lions, Pacific white-sided dolphins, those porpoises. It's just on a marine wonderland. Uh, and then a lot of the salmon, of course, are headed up the mainland fjords. Uh, we have many, many long, long fjords that that cut into the British Columbia coast, uh, and so these salmon are migrating up to to their Natal rivers and. So, uh, so that's of course where we go for the bears. So it's this real, you know, this real intersection of of beautiful, uh, you know, diversity of, of wildlife and and scenery. So it's a really wonderful place to operate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, some of the uh, images that come out of there are just stunning as well. Well, I was just going to say, you know, one of the one of the unique features of 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 our lodge and and the way that we chose to operate is that we we don't have a single Sort of dedicated bear viewing location or 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 whale watching location. We've set up our operation. Uh, although I've never been to Africa, and and, and I know you have. Um, I'm many of my guests, 60% of our 60 to 70% of our guests are from the UK, and so and I've been in this industry for a long time and have spent many many hours listening to amazing stories of these African safaris, which has just cultivated this incredible image in my head of, of these experiences and so i've really without <laughs> having been to africa i've really tried to craft the experiences in the context of these safari type uh, um, adventures and so we have four different vessels uh crew boats we have zodiacs uh, on each vessel yeah we have um, a fleet of four four-wheel drive trucks and it's um, situated in these remote river systems on a on a network of, of some old logging roads and so every day we have access to five different rivers yeah. um, and our zodiacs. And, and every day is truly an adventure in these incredibly remote areas. So every day might be a combination of a crew boat ride to a remote river, switching into a zodiac, walking on foot, or getting into a four by four and traveling into a further, you know, further remote reaches of these river systems. And, and I think that's where um, you score really highly is because you can get out and walk on foot and it's serendipity you're not standing on a platform waiting for the bears to appear and you know you're right there amongst them going out and doing it as a safari as a walking safari and not knowing exactly what you're going to see each day with the potential of seeing bears is ultimately a more thrilling way of doing it and, and a more experiential way of doing it in a, i would say 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I started my career working at a lodge where we did view from towers, um, and it, it was wonderful in the sense that we saw abundant uh, bear activity and, and got to see them, um, you know, up close. But what, what I've what I've come to to you know to believe, and and and, and my my experience has been that it's a much more compelling experience to be on the ground with these animals in their own habitat in a natural environment. Um, and it, it does take a lot of skill and experience to be able to, to, to travel in that way. I have a, a, a pool of incredibly uh, experienced, talented uh, guides and outdoors people that we work with. Um, and, and that's our style of operation. That's what we really, that's what we live for is getting out there on the ground on the same ground, the same level as these animals and, and trying to, to, you know, for, for us, it's really about trust and um, it's really about developing the trust with these animals. So, that they know that when we're there on the ground, that we're yeah. part of the scenery, and uh, and so they they you know basically ignore us and allow us to have some you know quite intimate encounters often with mums and cubs and sub adults. It's really extraordinary. And they're mostly residential in that area, so presumably you know most of the uh, individuals per se as themselves. Yeah, yeah, we you know in um, twenty. 17 we started to go to a new area uh it was um it was very very difficult to access uh, we started going in by by zodiac it was very very muddy to access this particular river to traverse it had an incredibly long estuary um with very very long muddy tidal flats um so we started to go in by zodiac and because of the difficulty of access we we we, we discovered that there, there was quite a quite a healthy population of bears in this river system um, that had never been around humans, you know, because of that difficulty of access. We've since discovered another access point, uh, hence our four-wheel drive trucks. We drive along a, a network of, of, of logging roads, um, very remote, um, deactivated logging roads uh, in our four-wheel drives to get to the back of the estuary. So we kind of avoid the, the muddy trek in, and that's been quite nice. But yeah, but yeah we found ourselves <laughs> in the pocket of this beautiful valley, um, which is... We, we, we've come to see it as, a, as kind of a nursery. So last year, for example, we had three mums, each with three cubs, uh, two mums with three cubs of year and one mum with three one-year-olds, one-and-a-half-year-olds, and, and just had some extraordinary experiences. That's quite unusual in itself that they're, bringing, re, they're consistently raising three cubs at a time, isn't it? Yeah, it's really a testament to the fecundity of, of this habitat, you know, this, this, uh, the richness of the, have the habitat, the sedge and, um, and the roots. Um, we are having some issues with salmon, uh, which you may have heard uh, on the British Columbia coast. Yeah. And we can get into that later if you, if you wish. But, uh, but what we're seeing is that bears, the bears uh, in our section of the coast are, uh, tend to be focusing and relying more and more on a year round, um, or, or not a year round, but a, but a, a seasonal f a food supply of, of berries, uh, roots, and sedge, uh, and focusing less on salmon as we're starting to see uh, some of the impacts um, on, on the salmon returns. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we're quite upfront about is that oftentimes, you know, guests are coming to see that iconic image of bears catching salmon. And what we're trying to, to convey is that we may well see that because we do go to rivers where salmon are spawning. Yeah. Um, but what we're, what we're, what we're specializing is the, getting into river systems where we're seeing bears feeding more on sedge and berries and invertebrates on the seashore. 
um, and, and digging for roots and tubers in the estuary itself. So it's a little bit of a different type of experience. But again, these bears are very mellow in these estuaries and so really afford us some really nice uh, special encounters with them. And, and therefore probably less dependent on, um, they're not fighting as much for the food resources that are there at the time um, with the salmon runs. I was going to say because uh, they're reliant on alternative food sources that are more widespread and consistent. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and one of the, the nice things about it is, you know, typically um, there's, there's a conception that the, the, the sort of prime time to come is August and September. Well, what we're seeing now is with the lushness of the estuary in June and July, um, that's when we're having some of our nicest encounters with moms and cubs and some of these sub-adults. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's extending the season and, and uh, giving us more, more opportunities. Uh, what's life like in the lodge? When does the season start and um, when, when are you really closing down at the end of season? And what's it like day to day during the season? Yeah, well, we, we open um, June 1st, of course, this year um, because of COVID. We've, we've, uh, we've modified things a little bit, but uh, typically we open June 1st and we close October 10th. And we, as I said, we operate four different uh, crew boats. Um, we have a, a pool of eight guys and 20 staff. And so typically on a crew boat, we'll have uh, approximately eight people. We have each of our boats traveling to different river systems every day. Yeah. Uh, so we like to keep our group sizes to about uh, eight uh, guy, eight guests and two guides for bears and uh, potentially up to 10 for our whale watching excursions. We're up in the morning at seven uh, and on the, crew, on the boats by eight with our lunch. And we're heading off to one of our river systems, which can be anywhere from 90 minutes, to two hours uh, en route. And we're keeping an eye out for different marine life and potentially bears feeding along the shore. Uh, but we always have a destination to one of the river systems specifically. Once we get there, we can disembark into a Zodiac and on foot in the river or, as I said, uh, into a vehicle and then on foot once we get to our final destination. But once we get to our final bear viewing area, we're there for the balance of the day. And we're on foot mostly exploring these river systems. When we find some, you know, some activity, we'll sit on a riverbank or sit in the estuary and, and, and just take our time with these animals, really, you know, really building on that trust experience that we have. And um, it's not a canned experience. You know, we don't, we don't, every day is different. We, it's not like we go and, okay, we're going to guarantee your viewing at this particular spot at this particular time. As, as you know, <laughs> wildlife is so unpredictable. Thank goodness wildlife viewing isn't like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it makes, it makes it really exciting because when we walk into a river, we don't know, are the bears going to be 100 meters around the corner behind that tree? Or are we going to have to walk, you know, half a kilometer to, to around the next river bend? So it, it makes it very exciting and, and, always, and always very unique uh, each day. And, and really stimulates that sense of adventure and that sense of excitement. We, we, we have a, a, a real wonderful family type of experience at the lodge. We, uh, you know, with our 20 staff, um, you know, we're, we have a fairly good ratio. We have up to 24 guests at the lodge in 12 rooms. And I think one of the things that our guests really like about the experience is they really feel like they're part of this, this community, this, this family experience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we all, the guides and the guests all eat together. And so it's, it's, it's a, just a really wonderful kind of community experience. And the boats are all back to the lodge at about five o'clock each day. Um, we often in the summer, we have the farewell 5 p.m. swim club. 
so we often jump off the dock. Well, I think our record is 19 guests <laughs> at once in the water, which was pretty spectacular, given that the water is about uh, nine or 10 degrees. Wow. And, uh, and then we have a buffet supper every evening. Uh, and, and then one, one of the nice things at the lodge every evening, we have evening presentations. So the guides rotate every evening, do a slideshow in front of the, in front of the, the fireplace or a, a talk or, or some kind of presentation. Um, on all different topics, all the guides have different specialties and different things that they like to, to share. And uh, and then, yeah, and then we'll round out the evening just on the deck with a glass of wine, watching the sunset. And uh, and and every evening I come around, usually after supper, and, and kind of do my, my, my Rubik's Cube where I, I slot all the guests onto a different boat. Work out who's got to go where and... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. what's happening and, the next and, day, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, we, we might have... You know, guests might have had uh, a wonderful day in one particular estuary, uh, in one particular style. You know, either uh, on, on a zodiac or a, or, a, or one of the trucks, and or on foot, and they want to try something a little bit different, that, that don't, a little bit different the next day in a different kind of uh, habitat. So, or go out and doing some more whale watching, or some kayaking. So it's um, it's it's just quite a variety and a, and, and a range of options for for folks each day. Yeah. That's the tourism side of it, uh, but you've also got a strong conservation initiatives going on and even some science happening as well. Yeah, um, we work um, closely with a couple of uh, conservation groups um, and, and also the First Nations. We, we have forged some very strong relationships with the local First Nations. One of the interesting things about the Broughton Archipelago is that it was home to, so pre-contact with Europeans, um, this area was the home to about 22 different uh, First Nations, and, and they were all part of a nation called the Kwakwakiwak. It's a bit of a mouthful, but, um, but they all spoke similar language. One of the interesting things about this area is that they, they had very distinct traditional territories, but all lived quite close together. Um, and so, you know, each, each territory was inhabited by a specific nation, uh, you know, specific tribe, 22 of these different tribes. The lodge happens to be in the in the traditional territory of the Mamaliliqua, um, who are one of the 22 different Kwakwakiwak tribes. And the Mamaliliqua have been very active in um, protection of their, of their traditional territory. And they have a, a guardian program, which is out on the territory in, in boats and on land each day, sort of patrolling the area. We work very closely with them on a couple of, uh, of initiatives. Um, but right across from the lodge is a very unique facility called Orca Lab. And Orca Lab is a world-renowned orca research station. It was started in the 1970s by a guy named Dr. Paul Spong. And they've become world-renowned for the study of, of uh, orca vocalization. And it's in Blackfish Sound, which is right across from the lodge, which is a real sort of transit point for northern resident orcas that come back into the, the area in every July and are with us for a couple of probably uh, about three months. Yeah. And so, uh, so we support their science. They have a whole network of hydrophones and underwater cameras that capture the, the audio and video of the whales. And in, in fact, it's available online as well. They've got uh, uh, a, a partnership with uh, an organization called Explore, which has a whole series of wildlife cameras. You may have heard of it. But we support them monetarily. I was going to say, perhaps we can put that link up uh, at the end of the uh, show or in the show notes so that people have got... Um the ability to go and look at that. That's great. I will send that to you because it's an ex yeah. Yeah. It's, they've, they've got some phenomenal images. Uh, 
So we've got two different types of orcas, two different what are called ecotypes of orcas in the Broughtons. We've got the resident orcas that feed on salmon and come back every year in July and usually hang out till the middle of October and then go offshore. And then the other ecotype we have are called Biggs orcas. And these are were formerly called uh, transient orcas. Yeah, that's, that's as I know them. Yeah, you know them as, as transient. Yeah. So, so these orcas travel all along the coast of North America, and um, and they're not, you know, they're, they're they can be viewed any time of year. Um, we're seeing a, 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 about a five percent increase in their population um, because of the abundant uh, population of um, marine mammals that they feed on. So they don't eat salmon; they just eat seals and sea lions and dolphins, and in fact, other whales as well. Yeah. And their population is increasing, and in fact. Um, just yesterday, I got an alert from Orca Lab that they had a, a pod of, of Biggs orcas coming by or, uh, Orca Lab and their hydrophone network. So, uh, so they're they're available to see in year round, and we're, we're seeing lots of sightings in in May and June and July when we typically wouldn't have had orcas prior. So that's really exciting. Do you ever get? Uh, there's a third group, isn't there, that are pelagic orcas? Do they ever come in at all? No, no, we don't see the the offshores. No, we don't see them at all. No, um, we uh, we get the other species that's very abundant are the humpback. Yeah. Um, you know, when when I started guiding in the Broughtons in the in in the late 90s, we were lucky if we'd see two or three humpbacks. And now there's about 75 documented humpbacks that migrate every year from Hawaii. It's a, it's a specific sub subgroup. Yeah. Um, and it's phenomenal. I mean, it, blackfish sound right out in front of the lodge is, has been called um, humpback soup um, <laughs> because um, when we're out there, it's often having we're often having to sort of, you know, um, it's it's a bit like driving driving around pylons. You know, it, it's it's very, it's it's just so thick with humpbacks. It's phenomenal. Wow. And um, so that's really really rich. And then we do have a um, a few um, a few minke whales as well. You know, but uh, but lots of Pacific white-sided, lots of dolls. I was going to ask about the um, humpbacks there because one of the questions we've been asked in the past from clients is, oh, I want to see bubble netting with humpbacks. Am I going to see? Where can I go to see bubble netting? Mm. Well, um, they've seen it on TV. They want to be able to get out there and see it. Well, what's so fascinating is that we work with another organization called MERS, the Marine Environmental Research Society. Or sorry, Marine Educational Research Society. And MERS is run by a woman named Jackie Hildering, and she's become, um, I would say, somewhat of a, of a, a, a North American renowned expert on humpbacks. And uh, she's been studying humpbacks all, over, all on the coast from Alaska down uh, to the southern part of British Columbia. And what they're finding is that, so, so in the Broughtons where we are, on the south coast of British Columbia, we don't see bubble netting. So bubble netting is, is typically only found in Alaska or on the north coast of British Columbia. That's as I understood it, yeah. But what's really unique is that this is a learned behavior. And so last year, we saw the first ever uh, example of bubble netting in the Broughtons. And, and so what she's documented is how this bubble netting behavior is being passed on right. uh, down the coast. And so um, uh, I used to work at a place called Clem 2. I ran a, a spirit bear lodge uh, a few years ago before I left to run Farewell Harbor. Yeah. And they had just started to document around 2014, 2015. They just started to document uh, bubble netting there. Um, but what we are seeing is we are seeing a lot of lunge feeding. Um, and one of the things we are seeing in the Broughtons is a unique type of feeding behavior 
found nowhere else in the world with humpbacks called trap feeding. And trap feeding is where the humpback will stay stationary in the water column with its jaw open and let the herring come into its jaw (laughs) and then close its jaw. And, of course, filter out the water and swallow the herring. And it's the only place in the world where they've seen this. And we're seeing it more commonly now. We used to, like, you know, in 2017, we'd see it maybe once or twice a month. Now we're seeing it maybe once or twice a week. Um, And so it's phenomenal. So that's another learned behavior, yeah. Yeah, in conjunction with the huge increase that we're seeing in herring. It's almost like the supermarket comes to them, you know. It's it's really amazing. (laughs) They're not stupid, are they? No, no. It's really wonderful to watch. (laughs) You do one or two other things as well, don't you? Because you've got heli-hiking and things like that, which for us in the UK is somewhat of an unknown activity. I mean, if we go into the hills, we're going to go out and walk in them. Well, that's something we've we've um, been experimenting with over the last couple of years. Um, it started uh, three years ago. We had a woman from the UK. She was in her late 60s, um, and her husband had passed away, and um, she decided she would keep traveling, and she came to stay with us for six nights in early June. The lodge was quite quiet at the time, and um, uh, she said, okay, Tim, I've had a wonderful time seeing bears and whales. Um, and, but I'm here for six nights and, um, I've been quite happy with the phenomenal wildlife I've seen, but I want you to do something special for me. (laughs) I said, I said, well, (laughs) let me think on it. And, uh, I said, um, you know, well, one thing I could offer you would be some heli hiking. Um, she said, I've never been in a helicopter and she was almost 70. And uh, I said, well, it's an amazing experience. It's truly phenomenal. I said, it's not cheap. Yeah. And and she said she said no that's fine I I this is a this is a a special holiday for me and and do something special for me so we chartered a helicopter for her and we took her up up onto um, an, an alpine area not far from the lodge and we spent the day uh, exploring did it fly did it fly into the lodge presumably it didn't fly into the lodge no no not right into the lodge but right beside us we have a, a cleared area uh, a helipad and, okay. Um, so it, yeah. and we're, we're only about ten minutes away from the the um, the on Vancouver Island. It's quite a quite a close uh, uh, short flight. So the it landed. Short hop across, yeah. Yeah, yeah, hop across, and it, it picked us up, and we took her up into the Alpine. Um, just a beautiful. Um, it was about um, probably say about twelve hundred uh, meters, and um, just a beautiful, beautiful ridge walk. We spent the day, and um, and she had a walking stick, and she did wonderfully, and. The views were absolutely, um, you know, unparalleled, um, and just to have that bird's eye view, and then the, some sightseeing back uh, on the way back to the lodge over the Broughton Archipelago, it was mesmerizing. And it just, it, we just realized that this is a wonderful yeah. way to get out and 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 experience nature in a in a different in a different way in a different context. And um, so, yeah, we've we've sort of picked up on that. It's not a huge part of what we do, but but we've we've we formalized it and structured it, and and it, uh, we do get quite a number of our guests taking us up on it every year. Um, geographically, put, it puts the Great Bear Rainforest in perspective by putting it with the islands, the the hills behind, and then, like you say, the Alpine Mountains behind that. It, there's some sort of logic to doing it to put um, the wildlife in its place, in its in its habitat, really. I guess that's right. As well as going out and getting some tremendous walking I and mean, fantastic views. Oh yeah, the air is it's a win-win. The isn't air it? is just is just uh, is just 
it's just spectacular. It's just so amazing. Uh, it's so pure. But yeah, it's you know we are we are the beauty is is right from the ocean to the alpine, and um, and to have that perspective, as you say, is is quite special. How does that fit with um, green initiatives then with the lodge? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, you know, we, as an off the grid facility, um, we have to bring in, you know, diesel to run our generator, propane for our heat. Um, and of course we run diesel powered crew boats. So we're acutely aware of, of the impacts that we have. We try and do the simple things, the re, you know, recycling and, and, and purchase locally where we can and things like that. But we realize that at some point, um, you know, we, we, we have to, to look at the, the bigger inputs and, and the, 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 the greenhouse gas emissions. And so what we've done, uh, we made a commitment when we started, yeah. when we opened the lodge in, in 2017, we made a commitment that by 2020, we wanted to be carbon neutral. And so we're probably going to be a year behind, but, but what we, what we are embarked on right now is a project in fact, my colleague, uh, Keisha, is on a conference call right now with an organization that we're working closely with in British Columbia called Climate Smart. And Climate Smart helps businesses in British Columbia do very detailed and in-depth um, carbon footprint yeah. analyses. And so uh, we're embarked on that process right now. So probably within the next three months, we'll have a very detailed report, which will give us a number. So it'll tell us the number of tons of greenhouse gas emissions that our operation emits. And then what we do with that report is then we go back, we look at our operation, and we look at ways that we can reduce our GHG emissions. And then what we've committed to is where we can't uh, reduce, we are going to offset. And we've, we've been working with an organization called the Gold Standard. Uh, it's well, well, well known here in North America. I'm not sure about in the UK. Um, but it, it allows us to purchase carbon offsets to, to become carbon neutral. Uh, and, and so we've committed to, 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 we had committed for 2020, but it, it, I think we're going to, we're going to be uh, a year delayed and, and, yeah. and have that in place by 2021. Yeah. And then we'll also open that up to our guests if they wish. We do have a, 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 a small fee built into our pricing, um, which goes towards this carbon offset emission, but we also offer our guests to offset their transatlantic flights if they wish. And so that'll be an option we'll extend to them yeah. uh, next year. That's good. But it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process. And you'll have a very defined point to which to reach through the audit that's being done, which is a good thing, isn't it? You know where you stand and where you, what you've got to achieve to get there. Exactly. And we really we're going to make that public on our website and really try and use it to stimulate um, other local businesses to, to join us in this initiative um, and be very transparent about about, you know, the choices that people make and, and what we're doing to make a difference. Well, I think with the way that the world's shut down at the moment and the way that that's affecting the environment in a positive way, people are going to be certainly more aware of that in the future, I believe. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was just in Germany and I, I started to hear this concept of flight shaming, you know, and, and there's a real, there's been this, this push to sort of encourage people to travel locally. And, um, and those are, those are, yeah, those are, those are issues that, that I think, um, you know, are, be, are going to become more and more you know, omnipresent as, as we, as we look at, at our impacts, but, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that with some of these, these carbon offsetting uh, initiatives, we can kind of, you know, minimize that. Yeah, that's, it's almost a whole 
different conversation talking about things like that because equally we need people to travel to support wildlife conservation and initiatives around the world people have to be aware of what's happening and they can't just see it through the tv screen through some film crew that spent six months 18 months out filming and you know that that stimulated nature travel for sure particularly through the bbc here in the uk um but to now stop traveling and consider purely our carbon footprint and not consider the greater impact on wildlife and nature around the world if we don't travel Places are struggling now with the with the change with coronavirus that people can't travel to maintain wildlife populations. The wildlife needs protecting out there, so it's there's it's a double-edged sword. Well, that's a really good point, you know. And and you know, we hear a lot of talk about the Great Bear Rainforest, um, and and this is an area uh, the size of a small European country, you know, uh, the size of Switzerland, a massive, massive area. It used to be called the Mid Coast Timber Supply Area, so it was being heavily logged. And uh, environmentalists and First Nations and government and um, ecotourists got together to protect this area um, because they knew it was a gift to mankind. It's a huge carbon sink. It's home to some of the most iconic wildlife on the planet. Yeah. Um, and it was being logged at an incredible rate. And, and so they got together and protected it and, and rebranded it, if you will, as the Great Bear Rainforest. And the only reason it got that protection was because of visitation from Europe from overseas and and so without that tourism this precious gift to humanity would have been lost and 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 not to mention this huge carbon sink you know so i think you you've hit that you've hit the nail on the head yeah we don't we can't afford to go down that route again with with the world's natural resources absolutely absolutely okay let's uh, lighten up a bit you've got to be able to tell me some anecdotes and some funny stories <laughs> yes or things that we've missed talking about well, I'll tell you one interesting thing. You asked for kind of a quirky, a quirky fact is that I like to go barefoot when I'm guiding, and I, I get a lot of funny looks because I walk. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the boat, and I've got my sandals on, and then we get into the zodiac, and I take my sandals off, and we get to the estuary, and we're walking over barnacles and sharp rocks, and into the estuary through sedge and mud, and <laughs> and I, I take my shoes off, and I get a, a lot of. You know, initially, a lot of questions like, what? how can you do that? How can you walk barefoot? And I guess it was about 10 years ago, I was walking in a river. I was working at Spirit Bear Lodge, which is a First Nations owned and operated lodge I was, I was managing. And I worked with one of my guides was a very experienced uh, bear guide. And we were walking in a river system. And he said, Tim, you walk too fast. You, you've got to slow down. We're, we're in bear country. You've got to slow down. And I, and I, and I thought a lot about that. Yeah, it's interesting because I've spent my life charging up mountains, um, but I have started to slow down and look at the flowers and the butterflies and pick up on, you know, tracks and signs in the woods. And uh, it's a whole different aspect to being out in, in nature, for sure. It is, it is. Opens your eyes. It is. And I found that the, the way that I could force myself to slow down was to take my shoes off, because then I had to, I had to negotiate the train in a very different way. <laughs> And, and and I couldn't go charging through, and 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 it, it allowed me to slow down and and be very much more mindful around about my environment, about my presence, about what I was walking on, and and not to mention the wonderful sensory experience. A little bit like shiatsu <laughs> every day. 
It takes a bit of work when I come back every season in May. My feet are a little bit softer, so I have to. It usually takes me about a, a, a month or so to harden them back up again. <laughs> but usually by by the end of June, I'm good to go, um, and I'll go barefoot right until when we close. So and by September, you're running along the trails again. Pretty much, pretty much. But <laughs> we, I was I, I was mentioning earlier that with one of our one of my favorite rivers is is this river that we go to that's quite muddy. We give we have you know, boots and rain gear that we supply of all of our guests. Um, but uh, it's, it's very muddy. And so sometimes the, it's, we call it boot sucking mud. And so sometimes I will go up to my, you know, mid, mid calf in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. I love that sensation of, of and just feeling the sedge. And, and uh, um, so it's, it's quite a wonderful sensory experience. And uh, some of my guests have tried, but they, they, they may have walked three or four steps and then they'll put their boots back on. <laughs> <laughs> Then hit a barnacle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've just been talking about tourism and rain, potential impacts on the biodiversity and the nature um, without tourism. What do you see as the future for Farewell and for the Great Bay Rainforest? Then? Well, it's a great question. You know, I think, um, of course, COVID, here we are talking in April 2020, and COVID is on everybody's mind, and, and we're not sure that will be able to open this year, for example. So, um, so the, the, the future is, is, um, is a little bit unclear right now, but, you know, we're committed um, for the long haul to the family owned business. You know, we're feeling those incredible financial pressures as, as many people are. And so we're hopeful that we'll, we'll be able to, to tough it out. You know, we've got, we've got, you know, our, the two families here are very committed and, yeah. Um, we're going to do everything we can to, to, to come back stronger than ever in 2021. And we're hopeful that our travel partners and our guests will, will stick with us. And, and we think they will. We're, we're hearing lots of good signs and lots of great support around us. And, and honestly, Steve, I'm not sure how this is going to impact long haul travel. Um, as you say, you know, the, the Brits in particular are very resilient and, you know, very hardy and, and very adventurous. So my hope is that that will spring back. Uh, yeah, I will be back out there. Yeah, I, I suspect so, which is, which, is, um, which is so wonderful to hear. Um, so we'll be there waiting, ready uh, with enthusiasm. My guides are, are just chomping at the bit. No, I'm sure they are. They call me weekly, like, what's going on? We, can we get out there? Can, even if there's no guests, can we still get out there and go exploring? And, <laughs> um, and, and so we may, in fact, do some of that. Well, that's no bad thing either, is it? Exactly, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, we, are, we are seeing some, some changes in the Broughtons in terms of, um, you know, climate effects on spawning salmon. And so, uh, so what we've seen in British Columbia is that bears in particular, so there's a lot of concern over spawning salmon, um, and, and that's a real concern in and of itself. Salmon are, are really, in some ways, the lifeblood of, of the coast. Yeah. Um, but what we've seen in terms of bears is that bears are very resilient. They're omnivorous animals, uh, and they, in, in other areas where salmon, spawning salmon habitat has been impacted, they've rebounded to focus on other food sources. Yeah. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Uh, we were really concerned about what that was going to do to the to the bear population, but it gives me a lot of hope. We're seeing a very, very healthy bear population. But what we're having to do with our partners and with our guests is really educate them to the fact that you may have to set aside this iconic image of bears feeding on salmon yeah. and 
being open to seeing bears doing what they do, uh, you know, what the, the, the diversity of what they can feed on. For the rest of the year, almost. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So if, if they come with that attitude, um, then it really opens them up to a much richer experience. And, and so if, if we can make that message loud and clear, then I think, um, I think the future is, is really bright. We're seeing lots of doom and gloom around us in terms of environmental impacts. But for example, the humpback population, as I mentioned earlier, is exploding. Uh, and, and so uh, it, it, it's a numbers we've never, ever seen before. Yeah. The, the herring population, which sustains it, is, is exploding uh, in, the, in the Broughton. So there's some really, really good news around us, too, which, which really bodes well for the future. That is really, that's really, really good news, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really, I mean, it's, that's fantastic news to hear, isn't it? Yeah. That we're able to monitor these things and see that sort of comeback. Yeah. In, not just in our lifetime, but in a matter of year, a few years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of room for, for optimism around us as well. Well, that's, I think that's a great note to leave uh, this interview on with full of optimism for the future. Thanks, Tim. Great. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that journey out west to one of the Northern Hemisphere's most biodiverse ecosystems. Tim is also keen to contribute to our monthly roundups with the next one coming shortly, so you can keep up to date with happenings from the Great Bear Rainforest. So remember to subscribe and share this podcast. And if you've any comments, then do email me at podcasts at wildlifewilderness.com. Wildlife and Wilderness is at all protected. Thank you.